Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, what does the future hold for the Independent Investment Advisor? I'll be speaking to the president and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. We have an event coming up that I'd like to bring your attention to, and that would be our Business Excellence Series event on Strategic Wealth management. We'll have a panel of experts weighing in on how best to invest, how to get the best return, and they'll also be available to answer any questions you may have. That's taking place November 8th at the Vancouver Club. More information is available at BIV.com slash events. And now for our show, you're listening to BIV Today. My guest today is Dan Pontefract, Chief Envisioner at TELUS, where he was previously Head of Learning and Collaboration. He's also the author of the new book, Open to Think, Slow Down, Think Creatively, and Make Better Decisions. Dan, thanks for joining me in studio. Thank you so much, Haley. What is the job description of a Chief Envisioner? What does that entail? (laughs) Uh, Well, we were trying to trick the media because it's not a word. Um, (laughs) I have the fortune of being at TELUS for about 10 years now. The first five years as its Chief Learning Officer gave me the opportunity to help the organization with its culture. So whether that was the engagement of employees, uh, the learning, the collaboration side, the performance development, and so on. And that was for five years and loved it. And then I pitched the idea to take our learnings as an organization and help other organizations with culture change, with engagement, Mm -hmm. with learning, with collaboration, with flexible work. And so our little troubadour called the TELUS Transformation Office helps our clients, whether they're public sector, uh, small, medium-sized enterprise, et cetera, with those aspects of leadership and culture and engagement. So Achieve Envisioner is just a way to open up the conversation about how can we envision a different, better, perhaps more engaged future with your employees. And how does being open to thinking fit into that? <laughs> well, I'm also blessed to have the opportunity to write alongside my my work. So from the first book, which was about culture called Flat Army, the second book about how purpose is so important in one's life and work called The Purpose Effect and now open to think, thinking, uh, each of those are kind of three legs to a stool. And so the things that we've done at TELUS, the things I've done in my uh, career over the span of 25 odd years now, it really comes back to those three legs. And so thinking or open thinking, as I call it, is a real key need these days. Uh, I believe that we are kind of uh, lost in our ways. And so to stop the stool from being wobbly, uh, we need to sort of reinforce our thinking and to get back to that uh, nice, solid stool. So how open or how unopen are we in our in our thinking, would you say? Well, effectively, I mean, it's not completely disastrous, but I think we've, we've lost our way a little bit in the sense of uh, any any good book arguably has a two by two matrix. So I figure let's use that as a, as a basis for this conversation. And so if you were to kind of think about an X, Y axis and along the X axis is uh, action and on the Y axis is reflection, uh, we tend to jump to action. And so we're in the bottom right of that quadrant a lot, meaning we're very inflexible. When I say inflexible, I mean we just jump to action because of our busyness, our distractedness, our addiction to dopamine, meaning we love those red flashes on our phone and buzzes on our phone, right? And so we go for it. 
And I argue uh, we didn't used to be like that. We had a little bit more reflection, which is sort of up on the top left. And we'd pause a little more. We'd marinate a little more. We weren't as frenetic. And so my argument is that the disengagement that we see in our organizations, the sort of lack of culture, the leaders that are pushing the, quote, do more with less mantra, uh, are actually creating a culture of freneticism in their organization. Yet, if they were to sort of pull back a bit and balance again reflection with action, then we'd see sort of the open thinking uh, mindset resurrect itself. I haven't invented anything new, Mm. right? This isn't the next new slice of bread. This is looking back to history and saying, well, how were we before and how did our organizations thrive? And it's not that we're necessarily uh, not thriving today. It's that I'm worried about a future whereby if we're just constantly on and busy and in meetings and doing more with less, we will be in that action phase. And the new ideas, the the healthier organization, the less mental wellness issues that certainly seem to be prop, cropping up and stress-induced leaves and so forth, that's all on the rise. So I believe through my research and through what I've seen that ultimately uh, that balances what we need to do again. If you had to pinpoint what it is, I mean, have we lost something? Have organizations eliminated something? Why are we different now than we were however many years ago? Well, the irony, of, perhaps out of all of this, is that technology was supposed to save us oodles of hours every week. And right. I think, in fact, you know, the dripping irony, it's done the exact opposite. So take your laptop for a second, right? Uh, you know, whether you're using Google Chrome, Internet Explorer, Safari, Mozilla, I, I don't care. But one of the default kind of toggles these days is that you will be encumbered by notifications from your email, from your Twitter feed, from your Instagram feed, right? Snapchats will fall into your face, right? And and we're not disciplined enough these days to turn them off. Mm. And so the busyness kind of begins to exacerbate itself. We still have our work to do. So there's, whether it's research, whether it's coding, whether it's trying to find flights, right? There's work to do in the org. And then you've got other bits of content that keep encroaching in your day. And so if we're not disciplined enough to know when we need to focus and and take away the time to do deep work or deep thinking, whether we need to go for a walk or to the art gallery and and be inspired or go for a walk with someone else and sort of network and engage in conversation, if we're not doing the dreaming and the better decision-making, we're ultimately only doing the doing. And so when we're only in fits and and bouts of execution, whether it's the laptop notifications, as I mentioned, or, you know, just adding more onto your plate, uh, the frightening part is that we don't know when to say no. Right. And leaders ultimately are also uh, sort of in this bit of spite that I sense. And that is they're they're not empathetic enough to their team members to say when is enough with the workload, with the imbalance, the stress, the always on and so forth. So frightening as it is, I think there is an antidote. It's just to do what we used to do in the past. And who's responsible for that? Would it be the individual or is it up to an organization to set the expectations? It's a bit of both. And I'm not trying to fence it uh, or be indecisive in sort of the antithesis of the book itself. Uh, (laughs) Individuals need to kind of look look at themselves in the mirror and say, well, what, what can I do differently? So, you know, when you set up a meeting, for example, why do you default to 60-minute meetings? Why not make it 30? Why not make it 45 and actually toggle the switch inside of your calendar so that it's a, you know, a 15-minute meeting or a 45-minute meeting? 
you can take back your time. I think time is one of the most precious resources that we've forgotten. Mm -hmm. We just cram more into our day and our calendars, and that has its consequences. So individually, we need to do something different. But similarly, I argue leaders need to take a step back and reflect and say, well, how can we do this differently? So distraction training. So we don't know that we're distracted or leaders should probably help their employees see that they're getting distracted. And whether that's, uh, you know, with a mobile device, a laptop, other technologies, right? Fitbits, all of a sudden now everyone's looking at their Fitbit yeah. and it's because it's buzzing. It's like, oh, you've got 5,000 steps still to go today. And then you get, you were doing something before, like you're maybe writing on a Word doc or a Google doc, maybe you were in a presentation and then all of a sudden it's like squirrel. <laughs> you you know, your Fitbit goes up. So you've got to, you now don't have your undivided attention to whatever it is you're working on before. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is it's an individual approach. Look in the mirror and leaders, whether it's distraction training, empathy training, looking at bandwidth and and balance loads of its employees, they have a fiduciary responsibility to the health and wellness of their people. And they should do something about it. It seems though we live in a culture where we're told data is important and we want as many data points as possible. And then we can come to some sort of informed decision on whatever we're trying to decide upon. How do you figure out what's a priority, what's not? How do you determine, okay, I need to reply to all of these hundreds of emails or I don't because that's a distraction. Yeah. And that's a prioritization plan that, again, we I think we've forgotten. So, you know, I recommend a simple four-star system. Like you can do whatever you want, but to have the ability to assess information as it's coming in or taking the time during a day and look like block off an hour and sort of look at this email, look at this text, look at this, what have you, and say, okay, what's my prioritization? Four stars means it's got to get done by the end of the day, three stars by tomorrow, two stars end of the week, one star, you know, next week or something like that. That's what I use, right? So I am always prioritizing. Does it need my undivided attention now or not? And you brought up a really good point about data. Uh, I, I love the, the old quote, we're entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. Mm. And so one of the other things that sort of leaked into society, as we've heard for now, what the better part of the past two and a half years is sort of fake news. Well, our fiduciary responsibility to ourselves is to source out fact and truth and to make judgment and good decisions based on that. I find as well, because we're so busy, we're not doing the hard legwork to look into what the actual data is, the actual truth. And so we make these very spontaneous, quick decisions that are ultimately failing us because we don't have the time to spend more time investing in what is that truth or the other data points that go along with it. And we just move on to the next shiny object. Mm -hmm. So your point about data, so twofold we talked about there, I agree, you know, prioritization is kind of important, but also making sure that you have the right data before you make that decision is equally important. You mentioned you've been at TELUS for a decade. You're now helping other companies sort of implement different programs to get better results and engage their staff. What are some good examples of how organizations have implemented ways of slowing down, thinking creatively, opening up how they think? Yeah, uh, calendar audits. Strange as that sounds, I mean, not an organization-wide big brother, big sister looking down on, you know, 400, 4,000, 400,000 employees. But when a leader sort of takes the interest of looking in on its employees or the team members' uh, calendars and saying, well, how are you spending your time? 
And is there something that I can help you out with? Oh, I see you're commuting an hour a day. Could we maybe uh, get you to work from home one or two days a week so that we can you know, make life a little less miserable for you on the commute? Or how many times are we as a team meeting? Why are we meeting twice a week? Is it bogus time, that second hour? Should it be maybe one 90-minute meeting every two weeks? Should everyone be involved in every meeting, right? So meeting audits, time audits, is one of the easiest, quote, low-hanging fruit actions a leader could take to help both him or herself as well as the team that he or she is leading. Mm -hmm. We've spoken about this on the show before, but it's that need on the part of the employee to feel like you're doing a good job and you're recognized for doing a good job. And so you maybe stay late. No one's necessarily being promoted or the, the concepts there that you don't get promoted if you check in at eight, you leave at four, you do nothing above what you're, you're expected to do. Hmm. How do you get around that? Well, that's a culture issue, isn't it? Right? I mean, cultures and organizations, whether they're in British Columbia, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, uh, if it has a culture of being present and not based on productivity, then you've got yourselves an issue. If leaders or the C-suite only admire those that, quote, stay late or hammering on a keyboard until seven o'clock at night, is that a culture you as an employee wants to be a part of? That's, you know, an existential question we all must ask. But arguably, uh, there we have this line at TELUS, culture is our competitive advantage. You know, in the mid-2000s, our engagement scores were in the very low 50s. And they're now in the high 80s, approaching 90%. Engagement being a measure of how much an, an, an employees in the organization want to say good things about the org, they want to stay at that org, and they strive to go above and beyond the call of duty. That's a very material difference over a 10-year period of of how culture can be its competitive advantage. But if that organization, TELUS or otherwise, is trying to extract blood from the stone, and that's the metaphor of trying to do more with less with those employees, and not having a genuine uh, concern for their health, their well-being, their purpose, you know, their engagement, their life, knowing their kids' names, or, you know, their birthdays coming up, like, key kind of pieces of uh, information like that, they'll always push them to work till seven. And that organization will only promote those people who are, quote, staying late, putting in more time. Mm -hmm. and, and, and is that really how we ought to be in this day and age? That's an important question. There's so much research now about the benefits of engaging employees and why companies should take that seriously. Do you think most organizations now recognize that as a valid goal and, and, and that it should be a priority? No. No, not no. yet. Well, I, it's not an emphatic no to all. It's a no, and then there are some yes buts, and then there are yes. So the no's are, they don't believe it. The organizations, the C-suite that are still running around as though the scientific principles of management, which is known as Taylorism from the early 1900s, where you're trying to you know, time people with a stopwatch and hope that they make widgets quicker and then send them home after 12 hours is the way in which to operate. So that's horrific. You know, that's a very disengaged workforce. The yeah buts are the ones that I call our atnas. They're all talk, no action. Mm. So they talk a good game about people are our most important assets. And then they don't actually follow through with the right engagement strategies, the right thinking strategies, the right time audits, the right... Uh, recognition programs and so forth. They're just talking a good game, but really behind the scenes, employees are frightened and fearful for being fired. 
And so they just go along with it. But then you've got about 30% of the organizations that are, in fact, working and are engaged. But it's the other 70% that I sort of give you that no and the yeah buts do. And what do you say to those organizations? Well, I mean, cheekily, that's opportunity for a guy like me who runs Telus Transformation <laughs> Office, right? So if we were at 100% of engaged and there's no me, there's nothing to do out there. There's no books to write. Everything's perfect. But uh, in a more serious note, I mean, how, how do you want to be known when you leave a room? Mm. I think that's the ultimate question of a leader. You know, do you want to be um, laughed at? Do you want to be scoffed at? Do you want to be um, hunted on Glassdoor for the reviews that say, I can't believe, you know, they had they had a company picnic and they, they didn't bring any booze. They just brought water bottles or whatever it is, like, you know, because they had booze last year, mm. right? They've cut that again, you know, the cuts, the cuts, the cuts. Th- that's, I think, you know, that... That question that Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, you know, asked us, you know, he said, um, how do we want to be known? And he sort of rhetorically answered it, to be that self which one truly is. And so if you're an employee and you see a leader who is being that self which one truly is, which is a macabre, uh, hierarchical, dogmatic, uh, very territorial and fearing leader, get out. Like find a way to exit your path to somewhere that's slightly more engaging, happy, and open thinking and like. But the leaders that, you know, have answered that question said, yeah, how, how do I want to be known? You know, how does this organization want to be known? Am I going to rule like it's Game of Thrones, right? Or is this going to be a slightly more engaged, happier place in which people say, hey, come work for us? Or, hey, I want to go work for them. Mm-hmm. I hear it's pretty cool. You know, that's... That's that's my gig. <laughs> so how does open thinking then fit into that? Can it help companies get to a place where they're very positively known? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it sounds slightly pretentious, but uh, when I wrote that first book, it was an audit essentially on what are the great culture practices in an organization, from learning to tools, right, to recognition and so on. And then I felt as something was missing, uh, that there was a yang to the yin that I had not written about. And, and that ultimately became purpose. Mm. So what is purpose of self? But more importantly, arguably for the person, they have to be working in an organization. So they have to go, hopefully, work in an organization that has a higher purpose. It's not just there for profit or EBITDA or revenue. There's more to it. They're serving society, community. But we all hold a role, whether it's at BIV, whether it's at TELUS. So do you have purpose of role? And so those three types of purpose are really important to balance out culture. So culture and purpose became the yin-yang. But here's, here's the answer to the question. That's the preamble. I found that nothing has really moved from a needle perspective on engagement or purpose over the last two decades. And in fact, I started looking back a little further, and it really came to be around the, the early 1980s by a chap called Milt Friedman. And Milt Friedman was the economic advisor to Ronald Reagan, who essentially implemented something we now know as Reaganomics. And Reaganomics, with all its different bits and bobs, one of them was called increasing shareholder return or shareholder primacy. And that basically means that the company will do anything to game the system in which to increase its revenues, its share price, and so forth, right? Okay. So uh, with there being no engagement increases over the last two decades, and really uh, you know, only a handful of great organizations that have 
enacted a sense of purpose. Uh, I believe we have a TELUS, but there's the Patagonias, there's the sales forces, there's the Johnsonville sausages, right? Go look at these. They're great examples. But but what's what's happening is that we don't have, again, that time or that ability to dream and make good decisions to improve the culture or to enact the purpose. And so it became a, oh my gosh, is it because we're closed thinkers that we are not having this type of culture or purpose happening. And so it was this uh, kayak ride I was doing um, in in Victoria. And it just sort of hit me. I was like, oh, God, yeah. We're, we have lo- we're losing the ability to think because of all of those pressures on our reflection time and how we're so busy and distracted and we're annoyed. And we're, we're not ultimately fulfilling the journey of the three legs of the stool. They're all, the all legs are either cut off or wobbly. So culture, purpose, and thinking became sort of my, my, I guess, model. And so the third book, Open to Think, was a way in which to say, here's what we can do differently with our thinking, with our time, with our strategy, uh, with our creativity, with our critical thinking and the, ju- the judicious decision-making needed to, based on facts and not fiction and so on. But we still need to get things done. I'm not suggesting we sit around and just yap at the um, at, at Stanley Park and have a great time around the 10K run that I do, right? Mm-hmm. No. The stuff needs to get done. But can we do it in a more open, copacetic, benevolent, and employing creative and critical thinking? And so there are lots of things to help you in your daily life, of course, in this book. But that was one of the reasons to write it. It was, oh, culture and purpose have not shifted at all. Perhaps it's because we're, we've forgotten how to think. So what kinds of conversations then do company leaders need to start having with shareholders, with employees, with other stakeholders so that they can maybe start to crack open closed thinking? It's a great question, Haley. And one of the first ones I argue is to shift the conversation from shareholder to stakeholder. Hmm. Who are our stakeholders? So uh, at TELUS, you know, we went through an exercise almost a decade ago uh, inculcating a, a philosophy we, we call the TELUS leadership philosophy. And in it was the definition of our stakeholders, which is our customers, our business. We still obviously need to make money and revenue and hit targets. Our people, so the team members and community. So those are our stakeholders. This, that is who we serve. That's our social purpose, so to say. BlackRock, uh, with Larry Fink and company, is another example. Them, sort of, and Larry and team looking in themselves in the mirror a couple years ago and saying, hmm, maybe there's a different way in which we, arguably, you know, could be viewed as one of the largest banks in the world if you were to look at them as a bank. They're not, Mm -hmm. but my point being, that's how much money they hold in terms of equity and, and investments. They actually looked in the mirror and said, well, we are doing it wrong and let's do it differently, be a role model. And Unilever, when the addition of Paul Pullman came into play uh, back in January of 2007, he went to the street and said, I'm sorry, uh, I'm not going to give you guidance anymore. And the street freaked out and the stocks dropped on Wall Street and Dow and uh, Bay like by 14%. But he went and increased employee engagement from 50 to 87%. His EBITDA went up 150%. His EPS went up 50% over a period of time because he said, look, there's a better way in which to operate. And he looked at culture. Uh, in hindsight, he's obviously enacted a new type of purpose, uh, what he calls the Sustainable Living Index. 
That became the way in which they operated. And then he encouraged their HR leaders, their leaders, uh, line leaders to stop and think a little more and to be pausing in the moment, to marinate in thought before making some of those decisions they had made in the previous couple decades, hmm. which was not ruining the company, but it certainly wasn't prospering the company. Is part of the formula then patience, not expecting a result right away, but being willing to stick it out? Yeah, I mean, another one for the BIB audience would be the term short-terminism. Mm. Uh, a, a mentor of mine is Roger L. Martin and former dean of Rotman School of Business. Roger uh, pseudo-coined this with, with a couple other people that basically said, look, when we fixate on the quarter and not on the long-term, problems ensue. And so I argue that we need to be thinking like this book argues uh, toward long-termism. <laughs> So we cannot believe for a second that uh, this planet is is just for us. It's ours. It's for everyone. We cannot believe that you know um, our career, whether it's forty-ish years or so, is is not going to impact another generation. It does. Uh, you know, I I'm born in 1971. I uh, was born in Hamilton, and I came home in a bassinet that was in the back seat, and and there was no seat belts. Right. Right. And my mom and my dad were in the front of the station wagon. Do we do that today? <laughs> no. Right. I've got three goats. That's what we call our kids. And when I brought them all home from children's here in Vancouver, uh, each of them with a nurse and a doctor coming out into the car made sure that they were buckled up as if they were going to the moon. Right. Right. So we can change. We can change our DNA and our attitude from, oh, yeah, yeah, we're only here for the quarter. Or we don't care about our people. We're Atnas, all talk, no action. We talk a good game. We don't really have purpose. We say we do, but we don't. Yes, we can change. We can be the metaphor of the bassinet to the sort of baby that can be uh, straddled in towards the moon uh, after leaving the hospital. So in the couple of minutes we have left, then building off your last response, what would be something you want to leave our business leaders and our audience with? What's some sort of step they should take today if they want to start thinking more openly? Well, it's twofold. I'll go back to purpose for a second, then I'll come back to thinking. Sure. And so on the purpose side, I, I would ask a, a C-suite to look at themselves and say, you know, why are we here? What's our declaration of purpose? It's not a mission statement. It's why are we here? Why do we want uh, people to join our organization? Why do we want customers to believe in us? What's our North Star? Mm. And so that's kind of step one, I would argue. We'll talk about cut culture another day. Maybe I'll come back. On the thinking side, you know, there's a mantra I've got in the book called dream, decide, do, repeat. Uh, we far too often are employing a tactic that is fire ready aim. <laughs> and that means ultimately that we're just in such a state of doing that if leaders were to take a step back and ask themselves, what might we do with our time? What might we do with our creativity differently? How might we make better decisions in the dream, decide, do order, but not be fearful to make mistakes and to go back or not be fearful that new data has surfaced and to go back? When we are dogged and ruthless, uh, that affects culture and it certainly distinguish itself or extinguishes perhaps the purpose. So I think leaders today need to really analyze themselves on how they're spending their time, what amount of time is going into creative and critical thinking, and how much doing is actually going on, and to rebalance that in order to ideally reset the org. 
Dan, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Where can listeners find the book? Well, we thank you for Haley, and we try to make it easy. So it's open to think.com. You don't have to think about that. There we you all- go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thanks again for joining me in studio. Great having you on. My pleasure. Thanks again. That's Dan Pontefract, Chief Envisioner at TELUS and the author of his latest book, Open to Think, Slow Down, Think Creatively and Make Better Decisions. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course at BIV.com, where you can also find more business news across platforms. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye.